0: What would it feel like to be free? Do you constantly try and make changes in your life but always slip back into old ways? I used to be constantly frustrated by my lack of willpower. What I never knew is that there was a reason why I could not control myself and that there are processes that you can follow to regain your freedom. I interview some of the most knowledgeable and compassionate minds talking about breaking all varieties of bad habits and how to actually live a joyful and fulfilling life. Listen to the show and hit subscribe to free yourself from the shackles of the mind. And if you find some benefit, please share it with a friend and let's make the world a better place together. Hi guys, welcome to the Break the Chain podcast. I'm here today with Maddie Kitchen. Maddie is the founder of Sobriety Films CIC, which is a not-for-profit organisation that makes documentaries, films and does workshops to raise awareness for recovery from addictions and mental ill health. She has now been in recovery from addiction for an impressive 15 years. So I'm really looking forward to hearing a bit more about your journey. Uh, Maddie. thank you for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to be here. On the other side... It's
0: of- an honour to have you on the show.
1: Oh, thank
0: you very much. Um, it's kind of funny how we met, I think. I think I think if I remember rightly, you messaged me because its uh, is there really a mental health service intending <laughs> in Wales? Yes. Um, mm. The answer's no. Uh, but there was going to be because, you know, I was planning to go there. So, um, yeah, I suppose, I suppose that's one good thing that came out of putting that on there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Tembi's... Uh, I've been going there since I was a kid, but I, I live in London. My grandmother lived there, and I saw it, and I was like, Tembi? Oh, my goodness. This is happening in Tembi. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> great, great that we've met. Great that we've met, finally.
0: It is. It is wonderful. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those strange ones where you feel like you already know someone before you know them, and we've had such little contact, but I feel like I know you, uh, which is uh, which is always nice when that happens please can you share your story with us?
1: Absolutely. Um, Gosh, where shall I start? Um, So my own personal story of um, addiction, mental ill health and trauma began in in my family. And um, so when I was uh, growing up, um, sorry, I'll start again. After I was born, Um, my mum got very ill with um, postpartum psychosis um, which is something that's recognized now and you know they have mother and baby units and all that kind of thing and they they didn't then and it was very you know um, mental illness was very stigmatized then and um, so yeah my poor old mum got that and then that turned into bipolar um, bipolar illness so Growing up, I was the youngest of three children, um, and my dad was an alcoholic um, and a work addict, actually. Um, so that was kind of the family dynamic. And then, in when I was in my teenage years, I I started to suffer from depression. I can remember feeling depressed when I was thirteen, <clears throat> and it was like this dark cloud came on my head, and I was like, "This doesn't feel right. I don't, I, you know, I don't know what's going on." Um, so fast forward to when I was 19, I had, um, I had like my first, uh, proper breakdown. So I have a diagnosis or they diagnosed me then of with, uh, as having, blah, I'm going to put my teeth in, um, as having a unipolar affective disorder, which is basically major depression. I had very severe anxiety as well. So, um, I went to university, um, and I studied film, and I started to self-medicate with alcohol. So then started my journey um, with with addiction, um, with alcohol dependence, and yeah, I, I mean I had such kind of crushing anxiety that I couldn't actually get out of the house. I was, I suppose, it was it was agoraphobia, and I was working in like on the London club scene, so I hid it. I was able to hide it by drinking because I was working in the evening, so. Um yeah so that was a kind of like a living hell really um every other night i was probably drinking i don't know two or two or three bottles of wine and in the, in the morning it would just be like oh my god total feeling of so you know so wanting to die and um you know it's like if you suffer with mental illness and and you pour alcohol on top of that it's like oof. You know, it's a real fire. So I knew, I knew that I had to get sober before I could, like, effectively treat the, the depression and anxiety. Um, so, gosh, it, it's... Um, I'm a completely different person now. It's like I've lived two lives. And um, somehow somehow I think what, what had happened was I was work yeah, I was working in this office but I was freelance and I had I was absolutely sick and tired of relying on alcohol to um to to, to, to to be myself. Um and it affected everything. It was the most important thing in my life. It affected all my relationships and um my family weren't aware of everything. I'm going on a bit here. I you can stop me if you want
0: you go um
1: and um you know it's just this like obsession um and I do think with addiction it could be anything you know it it really could it could it could have been drugs I did take quite a lot of drugs but that wasn't that wasn't my drug of choice it was alcohol um yeah addiction is addiction and you it can be behavioral addiction as well and we I, sorry, I turned to that because I was in a lot of pain with my mental illness, and um, yeah, so it was actually on Monday, um, it was 15 years, um, I rocked up to 12-step recovery um, 15 years ago, and uh, absolutely terrified, and I just thought, I've got to do this, Um, I knew that I could function and I I was working in this office and I had a good job and I was learning and I was just letting myself down by drinking and holding everything in it was like I was in my own world so I yeah I got into the 12-step fellowship and then and then that was really when my life started to change.
0: It's terrifying think like I think back to when I was in active addiction and like what it would have taken for me to end up at a meeting. I, th- I, th- I think, you know, you just feel like it's not going to do anything. Yeah. It's not going to work. How can that do anything?
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, when I first went in um, and I looked at the steps on the wall, I just couldn't understand what all that was about and there was talk of God and stuff and I just thought oh gosh this isn't me and I didn't understand what being spiritual was um you know as as opposed to being religious and I I had been brought up as a, a humanist um which actually turned out to be very helpful because my how my higher power became um the fellowship and the people in it and um my higher powers very personal thing to say is um, is kind of the spirit of the universe and the the inherent um, goodness that we do have in us and the ability to recover um,
0: I think I think one of those things is like you can one of the, one of the things I think that's really important with that process is getting beyond yourself and just having being locked inside your own head and expanding that consciousness way further beyond yourself, and and seeing yourself as a little part of a bigger thing, because um, we spend so much time trapped inside our head, don't we? Um, just thinking about ourselves, what how our life is, how our life's not how we want it, and uh, and it forces you to to care about something more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um when I was uh, locked in active addiction, it was like there was a wall between me and and, and the, wor- the rest of the world and everybody else and I was very I was very aware of it and that's the kind of that isolation, you know, that a lot of people have suffered around the world with with COVID. Um they would have had a had a taste of that. Um that's what kills people. Um people don't feel able to speak out and connect and I know everybody says Russell Brand it's all about connection you know it is all about connection um taking that first step um is profoundly difficult and kind of it goes against your your went against my addiction um I, I, I was just sick and tired, absolutely sick and tired. And I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I wanted to be like a whole person. I wanted to have friends and relationships that I could actually relate to and with and, you know, have a meaningful life. Um, and now I've forgotten the question.
0: Well, I think one, one of those points is there's lots of things that you said that are really interesting. Um, how like how do you connect isn't it amazing how you can be surrounded by people and feel completely alone and there is a wall there and it is invisible and what do you think that wall is
1: gosh what is the wall well in the addictive process my wall was it was it was like a cloak that i hid behind because i was scared of being myself and i because i was self medicating the mental illness it wasn't I mean I was being given antidepressants and I was having therapy but I was drinking and that that doesn't work. So I mean it's it's really bizarre because I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I you know, I my I have mood swings still. Um, they're not as bad as they were and I can work and stuff like that, but I still have them and if I'm feeling really, really bad and like someone just smiles at me in the street or you know someone in the shop goes hey it's nice to see you just little little things like that are just so you you feel like you're being recognized i'm not invisible hello you know it's beautiful i think um and going into recovery gives you the ability to talk to other people who have been in the same place um and it's not something that you can do alone um I mean, goodness! Can you imagine that if if we were like actually had to live on a desert island with no other human beings? I, I don't think I'd survive.
0: I don't think like anybody would really. It'd be awful. Um, and even even when you have severe anxiety and being around people is a nightmare, you still know you still you still go around people, don't you? Because you have to because you need it. I I've I've I, I can relate slightly to the. Uh, you know anxiety and agoraphobia and that happened to me over here where I just couldn't be around people I used to go to all these in the end to all these yoga events and stuff and things that were on and I wanted to go in do the yoga and as soon as that thing finished I'd just dart for the door because it's like do not leave me around all these people and have to talk like that for me was just agony Mm -hmm. and um yeah, and then, but then you go home and you just be crawling, and your skin would be all itchy, and you're just lying on your bed, just going like your mind's just going nuts, and your body's itching, and yeah, no, it's it, it's horrible. And I, I mean, one of the things is like, but the, the the path out of that for me was like I have to go there and do that, and it's not it's so uncomfortable, but you got to do it because you can't hide from it. Like I, I just I tried, I tried hiding from hiding from people and stuff, but it's it was it's, it's worse to hide from it one of the things the biggest realization I had with with the anxiety social anxiety and being around people was like I was when I was stood face to face with someone I was thinking I wonder what they're thinking about me I wonder if I I look stupid I wonder if I'm saying the right thing and the only thing person I was thinking about in that conversation was myself and as soon as I tried to get into that other person's perspective because I realized, like, I'm probably stood here talking to someone worrying about myself who's talking, who I'm talking to is also worrying about themselves. And there's not really a lot going on here. Is there actually any connection, you know? Or is it just two people stood face to face thinking about themselves? Yeah. And as soon as I started thinking, how is this person? Is this person okay? I wonder if this person's doing all right, you know? And that, it, it, that, that, that was like it took, taking the lid off the pressure pot. It was, yeah. yeah. And, don't get me wrong, that took, That was a process that took a long time. But I just wanted to put that in there because I think that's a really important um, thing. Yeah,
1: James, I think that's very important to say. You know, when I had severe um, – I've had severe anxiety in recovery and I've actually relapsed twice and it's when I've gone down into a very severe depression um, and luckily um, – I mean, the first relapse I had was just for one night, and then I went 22 months, and then I relapsed for a week, and I managed to get back um, from that, Um, and what I was going to say is, so I've had severe anxiety in recovery, and I've been through quite a lot of trauma in recovery as well. Um, There comes a stage, there came a stage for me where I had to, like you said, I had to like it's a kind of you put yourself in that situation you're screaming inside and you but you have to stay there until the anxiety goes down until you realize um especially with agoraphobia isn't isn't it um that the the anxiety will peak like um like a craving the first time i realized that i was going to be able to stay sober was when i was about three months sober, and I had a craving at work. And it was, um, I was just looking at the clock, and it was Friday night and uh, Friday afternoon, it was like five o'clock. And I was like, Oh, god, you know, everyone at the office is going for a drink, I can't, you know, I can't do this. I just started to sweat, and I just thought, Oh, my god, I can't. I've never, I've never, I'd always answered my craving before, and I sat there and I just, oh, awful, and then started to breathe and I just started to try and relax with it and then literally within 20 minutes it had gone it was profound it was like oh my god I I, I can do this I can do it I, can, I don't have to say yes to this to this compulsion that was when I really knew that I think I was going to be able to stay sober um, and in the same way with anxiety uh, I put myself in that in in situations that made myself uncomfortable and the anxiety would go down anxiety is probably one of the worst feelings that human beings can feel as well as depression and addiction but anxiety is it, it's it's very oh goodness you know but it does finish you know uh, it does diminish sorry it does diminish um and also, I think I'd like to say that, you know, um, uh, I think it's, you know, fantastic that you were able to speak out about your um, experience, your lived experience of that, because obviously it's it's so hard for men to talk about that. Um, so, you know, thank you for sharing that. Um, mm. Did you find that as a man that it was more difficult to speak out?
0: hmm I think one of the things that made it, made it things easier for me is that I left <clears throat> every I left the ego testicle scene that I'd got caught up in, and not to say that everyone in 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 the scene is a complete egomaniac or anything. But one of the things that happens is when you're around loads of people that you've grown up with, there's lots of competition. There's all, it's like the boys, boys, boys thing. And even the girls that I hung out with were like that as well. We was always just, you know, it was always banter and, you know, but then you caught wrapped up in this thing of like, we, we listen to this type of music and this is, we make these kinds of jokes. They're all quite the joke. The humor was really dark. And, um, you know, there's this, there's this image that you have to maintain, And when I broke free from that slowly over time, I was realized how, how much of a cage that I'd been in by trying to uphold these, um, expectations that that's the social expectations that everybody had of Mm. me. And what, you know, when I went away, I changed how I dressed. I changed how I spoke. I changed how I thought, um, you know, everything just kind of changed. And I realized that a lot of these things were a bit silly and, I guess that because I had become detached from that, I didn't, I wasn't so controlled by the social pressure. Um, And, and yeah, I think, I think when, when I finally shared my um, story, I was really scared of judgment, but it wasn't as bad as if, if I'd been there, it really helped me a lot. Detaching myself from that. Um, And being out. I think you've got to become really self-aware and aware of, the, how everything else is influencing you. Mm-hmm. I, had, I, had a, I had a point that I was going to mention before about the anxiety, you know. And it's kind of like I, I was saying, yeah, you've got to you've got to walk through it, and you've got to you've got to deal with those situations. But you don't have to deal with every situation, you know. You can pick and choose where you go, can't you? Because like, you know, I, I stopped going and hanging out in the places that would just make my life hell, and I started going to the places that would be healing, yeah. and people were nice. That, you know, I think if you feel anxious in a place that's good for you, you've got a problem. If you feel comfortable in a place that's bad for you, you've got a problem. Because <laughs> I didn't used to feel anxious when I was down, down at the pub drinking and, and whatever, but... You know maybe but if i go if I go into a pub now I start feeling a bit anxious mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing mm-hmm. <laughs> i, I want to feel anxious in the pub and in places where I don't necessarily aren't going to be good for my well being so I, th- I think that if you're in a place that you know is good for mm-hmm. you and you feel anxious that's a good that, that that's something that's, that's sorry that's something to work through if you feel anxious at the pub it's probably a good thing and just leave <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I felt anxious anywhere I was, anywhere, yeah. even when I was on my own in my bed. So, <laughs> um, yeah, when I when I got sober, I had to remove myself from from uh from the obviously, from the from the nightclubbing world and it's you know, when it, w- there's a lot of peer pressure, um, and there's a lot, you know, it's all social media about, you know, you should be having this life, you should be doing this and it's all bullshit you know it's complete bullshit it's about honoring yourself and finding your authentic self um and I think as when I started to do that and I put down you know the booze um the the process of recovery um allows you to start feeling good and positive things about yourself um and and they're the building blocks of self-esteem which then perpetuates further further recovery, further healing and, and reaching out, not being alone, talking to other people, yeah.
0: I don't think it's possible to f- feel something good about yourself. It's definitely not possible to know something good about yourself while you're intoxicated because you don't know yourself because that that literally covers you over. The intoxication cuts you off from who you are, so mm-hmm. y- you can't know yourself in, in that state. Absolutely,
1: so, um, you know, so I... I started drinking um, alcoholically um at uni um, but every so everything I kind of dealt with from from that point to when I got sober. I didn't really process emotionally, so you know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's like when you put your substance down, you go back to being a teenager again, and you have to relearn things. <laughs> like I remember the first time I went to like a twelve step, like a um, you know sober disco, and I couldn't dance, and it was like oh god, me really hideous, you know. And it's all about <laughs> learning to relate again, you know, have female friends, have male friends. Um, And then further down the line, relationships, which are probably the most difficult thing I've found, I think, in in recovery. (laughs) Um, But but wonderful as well, you know, because they're real Um, and you can actually talk to people and you can share intimacy because intimacy feeds us and falsity of addiction takes that away.
0: Yeah, yeah I I definitely struggle with relationships in my entire life, not not including two week relationships at school. Um, <laughs> I've had one relationship not like sober ever, and uh, it it wasn't for that long of a time. I had a, quite a lot of relationships on drugs, mm. and I'm far more tolerant when I'm totally off my head. But but sober, I find them really hard, and that's definitely one that I'm working towards as well.
1: <laughs> because you haven't learned to do them sober without drugs, yeah, yeah, it's
0: a lot of work
1: it's relearn it's learning something in a healthy way, yeah, without I don't know why do you, why did you drink or use drugs?
0: um because I was insecure, um the reason I started was because all oh, my friends did it, and that to uh, to say. When all my, I had no interest in doing it. But when all of my friends, all six of them, probably that I had at the time, and I'd always wanted friends so desperately, when I finally found some friends at secondary school after being bullied, you know, and finally getting some friends and and you do what they do else you have no friends because being isolated is the most painful experience in the world and to die is worse than to have no fr- is better than having no friends that's kind of like what it feels like it's like it's the most important that connection is so important mm-hmm. so when they all started doing it I did it at fear of dying from it I did it and that was one thing and then the reason why I kept doing it is because I was totally insecure I thought that on drugs I was more popular I thought that I was more um cool I thought that it may you know like it, it ended up having money from selling it and it was just this big ego thing really I thought that I was nothing without drugs and I thought that on drugs I was something um, the big, the so that's why big, I you know,
1: the biggest lie
0: that's why I did it uh, yeah I, but I didn't know who I was yeah. because I was just so insecure and it, it and and now that I have a far better grasp of who I am and what i am and what i'm supposed to be doing in this world i'm infinitely happier and more secure than <laughs> like i just i'm just like to be honest i I'm, I'm personally amazed by what i've found by digging there um because i thought i was nothing you know i really just felt pathetic all the time um well, and i just didn't i just didn't know myself and, and getting intoxicated gave me an illusion of being Cool or worthy, but in but reality of it is like that buzz was just on a downward slope, heading for the grave fast, Mm. via stopping off at all different degrees of suffering on the way there, and you know anything that feels good's in your head because what other people can see from the outside is an absolute disaster, so that's my summary
1: <laughs> did you um did you have any trauma or is that something that you don't really discuss it's, um i don't want to put you in a in a position where you have to talk about anything like that um you don't have to you um, don't have to answer <clears throat>
0: you know th- things have happened to me in my in my life and 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 stuff and yeah definitely i've had some difficulties at home um which I'm not going to go too much into that because it's too personal and it's not not relating to me um so much um and you know obviously losing so many friends to suicide which you say must have been really traumatic yes and at the same time I don't feel like I've been that affected by that in a negative way which is really strange um I think I think When I when I really unpack that, I think being bullied is definitely the thing that's had the biggest effect on me. Now you know that's um, now that I'm thinking about that right now, getting bullied definitely totally shaped me. It made you know um, being made to feel like no one likes you. Like I just never fitted in anywhere my whole life until I met these friends, and that's why I think I attached myself to that so so strongly. Um, People are surprised that I was bullied, but. I don't think many people get away with not being bullied, to be honest. But yeah, there were definitely some experiences that were just kind of like you. It would happen by group, large groups of people, quite a lot. So just being made, it just it gave you the message like no one likes you. You know, when, when like such large and it, and it definitely, you know, when I got a b- bit bigger, I turned into a bully myself mm-hmm. um, for a short period of time until I realised that it, life sucks. When you when you when you're not nice to people, life sucks. And if you got bullied before, you're going to get into some really bad situations after that. You know, I ended up in some, brut, getting some brutal beatings from groups of people. Um, just once you get into that whole world of violence, it's just, um, yeah, yeah. That, that that definitely that's definitely the biggest uh, trauma I think I have. Mm. Mm.
1: So um, I. Yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll tell you what I do. <laughs> Shall I tell you what I do?
0: I feel I, I feel like I was being interviewed. <laughs> I know, there. It's great. I do um,
1: because I'm a doc. I have I. Ha- I'm
0: a. i am have a load. I have some questions as well. Or would you like to talk about sobriety? <laughs> Let films me just now? say it's
1: because I'm a filmmaker. Because I'm a documentary filmmaker, I am fascinated by people and their stories and what makes them tick and and their experiences. So I'm sorry if I was interviewing you.
0: I, I like that because it makes my life a lot easier because I don't think people realise when, as an interviewer, it, it takes a lot of effort, effort and preparation and, and, you know, and you always have to be really thinking and waiting for them. But when someone stops talking, you have to be ready to talk. You have to have a question ready to go. And it's always, it requires a lot of um, attention. Um, so when you ask me questions, I don't have to think, which is really nice. And then- but I can tell from your... Um, from looking through your website and everything that you do, it's so obvious that you care so much more about other people than yourself. Like it's something that really you can see just from the way that you present things and share things online, which is really nice. So I'd love to know what you do.
1: Uh, it was interesting. You just said that cause I, I, that's something that I talked to my therapist a lot about. Um, because yes, you can, you do want to help other people and you can help other people and it helps my recovery to help other people. Um, but there is a point where you have to take a step back and do self care, and that's been something in the past that I haven't been that good at. It was a, a role that I learnt in childhood was being the, you know, maybe the rescuer or the caregiver, and um, and that goes along with codependence and stuff like that. So, uh, I yeah, I, I do uh, I do practice self care. Um, anyway, so what I do, um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I did a degree um in it was uh, a degree in media studies um and I specialized in television production I was a freelance journalist um I worked at news ITN well, I think you'll know ITN um and I so my initial interest in film was documentary I see how documentary can work and be extremely powerful and change people's perceptions of things and that's what I do um That's what I'm trying to do with the work that I do with sobriety films. What we do is we do recovery filmmaking workshops um, and that would be sort of possibly like a group of 10 participants. We're talking about on Zoom um, and I'll be working with the producer and we'll bring in like different people depending on how, how old the group are and, you know, Specific uh, demographics of the group, um, and then we basically teach them to make their own films using smartphones. How to write scripts, how to use how to use sound, lighting. Just share those skills so that they can use it to have their own voice.
0: Cool. How how can people uh, find those?
1: So uh, the best way to find us is um, via Instagram: um, sobriety underscore films. We're also, we also have a website www.sobrietyfilms.com um, and we're on Facebook you'll find us easily
0: So when you do the workshops online you share those things on there
1: We it depends who's doing them um, sometimes we have to um, uh, they, they, they are confidential. Depending on people's um, anonymity, whether or not they want their films to be shown.
0: Mm,
1: mm. Um, and we have to make it a safe place as well. Um,
0: yeah.
1: But they are, it's incredibly moving. Because when I started doing this, I was working in an NHS um, drug treatment um, service with clients with uh, complex needs, which was me. I mean, I had a diagnosis of. Dual, dual diagnosis which is mental health and an addiction um and i work with this group and we made films for the recovery street film festival in london and it was just it was just incredible watching um watching how they were able to engage and have it that their, their confidence grew in like because they were so creative um, and that's what we forget about people um, who've been cast out as worthless junkies or, you know, or sex workers. You know, uh, actually, these people are pretty freaking amazing and they have a lot of creativity, a lot to share.
0: From what I've seen, they're usually the most creative people.
1: I totally like, agree. Like
0: it's just f- mind blowing how many people's talents gets co- gets covered over by addiction.
1: Absolutely. And so what we do specifically is we, we, we encourage and we kind of support people um, in to, to, to kind of foster their self-belief. Because that's where I've been and I know exactly how it feels not to have a voice and to feel like you, you're you never going to amount to anything and you're probably not going to survive. So we're saying, you know what, you are powerful. You do have a voice and we're listening and we're going to help you say your story
0: that's awesome. I'm definitely interested in doing one of those workshops because uh, filmmaking is something that I would like to get into a little bit more. I know, Ooh. I know how it's an unbelievable amount of work um, planning these things. I've got a couple of I- ideas in mind for documentaries. Maybe we can okay. do that together one day because I'm if I do it myself, it probably won't be very good. But um, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Do you? Mind? I've got a few questions about your story yeah. and things that you've mentioned. Um, are you happy to fire through some of those? Yeah, sure. One thing that you mentioned is... Okay, this is a sen- sensitive one. Um, the question is what, is, what is it like having a father that was an alcoholic? And I'll just tell you why I'm asking. Um, there's a lot of... There's suffering on both sides of this. There's the pain of being an addict and having the guilt, knowing that you want to stop and that you can't. Um, and then there's also you know, someone receiving, on the receiving end of uh, someone who can't control their addiction. Um, I just want, you know, like just turning up the dial on the, on the empathy from, from I, I'm trying to, because I know what, it, what it's like being an addict and I know how hard it is to stop. Um, but I, I'd also like to get the perspective of someone who's receiving, on the receiving end of having a parent with an addiction.
1: Um, so my dad was a high functioning alcoholic. Um, and you know, so he worked really hard. So he kind of got away with it. Um, and the family, but the family knew in, inside the home. And I just, I suppose it felt like I knew why he was doing it. Cause I think he was trying to cope with what was going on, you know, with my mother, but also, because he was a shy man, actually, and he had a lot of um, anxiety about being successful, I think. It took me a long time to forgive him, and he died three years ago, and um, it, was, it was only a year ago that I really forgave him. I, I think the, the, the worst impact was seeing somebody just sort of disappear the minute they put picked that up, and they drink, they're gone, you know. Um and my mum really suffered. Um you know, and that's what I did. I picked up and I was gone. I and I learned I'm sure that I learned it um from him. Um you know he wasn't violent, thank God, but he was um he, he was sort of belligerent and um verbally um you know verbally a bit of a bully. So I think I grew up being, I was, actually, we were all frightened of him. Um, And I think that's kind of, that has kind of um, affected my uh, relations with men as an adult. I can, I can feel quite threatened by men sometimes, although I had an amazing brother who was very um, empathic and and lovely. That was balanced out.
0: Um. Yeah, I, I can imagine as being, um, you know, the the parent of someone who's an addict and really kind of hating yourself for it, and sometimes feeling like that people would be better off without you. And I know addicts who are in that situation who feel like they'd be better off not being here, and their family would be better off without them. But they're just what what the children want is so desperately is that connection with you, and it's that that's what they're suffering from is you not being there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole thing about Aces, adverse childhood experiences—you um, know, um, the the things that affect us when we're children. So it could be it could be um, sexual abuse or physical abuse in the family, or divorce. Um, you know, uh, prison time, uh, drugs, mental illness. Um, we all have those experiences. That loading and. It can come out as mental illness, addiction, and it's definitely trauma-based. Um, and that's the message that we try to put out um, so people can understand that they're not just lazy lazy people or, you know, nobody chooses yeah. to be an addict. Um, definitely and not. And from my experience, I was choosing from a place of pain. Um, it wasn't a hedonistic, it wasn't ever a hedonistic um, pursuit. Um it was a cry cry for help at times and um yeah, um there's some amazing organizations that work with the children um, of alcoholics like NACOA in in this country um and the you know the work they do is absolutely amazing as a
0: as a child do do you think you blamed yourself for a lot of the things that were happening happening in your family? <laughs>
1: That's a good question. Um, I I did a lot of work in therapy around blaming myself for my mum's illness. And of course I know that I didn't cause it and she knows that I didn't cause it. But the the most damaging thing I think was this kind of um nobody told the truth. Um and it was all sort of hidden. It was like we knew that there was something wrong with my mum, um, but we didn't know what and that 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 definitely went into me. The feeling that there's something not right. Is it me? Have I, have I done something wrong? And she would, she would be there, and then she would go. And the same with my dad, because he was drinking. Um, so I guess, it, you know, like um, attachment styles, I would say that I'm definitely, um, <laughs> definitely anxious. Um, uh, um, maybe a bit avoidant at times, but you know, the whole complex um, PTSD. Um scenarios is is one that I do identify with i I can see myself going into patterns of relating to people um and being a people pleaser is one of them um yeah it's um it's a it's a it's a really sad thing actually because in a way. Do I really know my dad? I don't know um, because you can't when someone's in denial about suffering with addiction. So he drank. He drank all his life.
0: Mm. It's hard so to it, it's hard to know someone who doesn't know themselves.
1: I think maybe he knew he did know himself, but he, he didn't care. He was like, this is, this is the way I want to live my life. Um, and yeah, I, I guess you, you grow up. Um, I, I, I definitely grew up with anxious attachments or the feeling that people would leave me, um, and I still don't like it when like friendships or relationships end. It's re- I find it very difficult. Um, something that I've done a lot of work on, and um, you know, and of course, when I was drinking, it was easy. But I I I wasn't relating to anybody. I wasn't my authentic self, and that that is my life's journey is is finding my authentic self because it didn't happen with my with my parents, bless them.
0: Mm. Someone told me a, a little anecdote that's um, kind, of really profound. Actually, that 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 shows us that even when we're doing nice things, don't get me wrong. It's good to do nice things for people. It's better to it's better to do nice things than to do nasty things, for sure. By a by a you know, an, by a millennium. But um, one one little experiment you can do um, to find out. <laughs> <laughs> sounds a little bit a little bit uh a little bit twisted to do this to people to be fair but but like when, when you give someone a present if they just just toss it to the side and shrug their shoulders how how annoyed you'll be by that you know if someone doesn't say oh thank you so much you know you always get to see that get the moments where you get a christmas present and someone doesn't it's not grateful and that other person's really pissed off it kind of identifies that you're not really just doing that for them. There's just such a, a large part of giving that's actually wanting something from that, wanting to get some, uh, receive something from that kind gesture, which shows mm. it's not an entirely selfless act, is it? Um, I just, I, uh,
1: I, I get more pleasure giving people presents that I've chosen carefully. Than Mm. receiving presents for sure. Yeah. But I think in recovery, I've learned, you know, people, places, things, you can't control anybody. You can't, you know, there's no control. You can't control people or yourself. So, um, I do, I'm quite good now at handing it over and, you know, that's somebody else's business. If they, if they want to react that way, it's nothing to do with my giving them the present. Unless it's something unpleasant,
0: it's it surrendering that those expectations which are attached to giving, receiving, think all things happening around you is really what makes you safe from addiction, isn't it? Because they're, they're those things are like the roots of emotion spiraling out of control. If if we allow ourselves to be, uh, if we have those expect these attached to the fruits of the outcomes of things that are happening that we do or whatever, we are, you know that's the that that means we're going to be on an emotional roller coaster and to 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 do things just for the good of it without the expectations really puts puts you in like a really safe safer place
1: yeah I no i totally agree um, just trying to try, trying to relate that to my film filmmaking um Yes, well, that's what um, Buddhists say, isn't it? And that's why people meditate. It's um, holding on to the outcome when we don't really have any control, um, and we don't have any control over uh, over the way people act. It's funny because um, when you're talking about having anxiety, and you, you get this kind of oh, this terrible focus on yourself, and it and it's it's deeply uncomfortable. Um, and I learned from going to meetings that um, there was times when I'd sit in there and I would be quaking, I'd be sweating with anxiety. And um, my um, my sponsor said to me, uh, nobody's looking at you. Nobody, nobody's, they're all, everybody is thinking about themselves. And it's so true. You know, that's a real relief. You know, we don't know what other people are thinking. And, um, you know, that they might be, really suffering
0: as well so um yeah that was that was something I've been thinking about recently like I had an injury a couple of years ago so I wasn't able to like uh, go to the gym or anything because it was my elbow and recently I, I about three weeks ago I started going again just to see if I can kind of do a few bits and bobs and I went and I found out I can, I can do some stuff and I, mm-hmm. because I've been, stopped and started a few times and I know that as soon as you start going to the gym you start Getting attached to the outcome a little bit or a lot sometimes, and since I've been, you know, practicing spirituality and stuff, it's kind of like I I, I believe I'm not my body, and I understand that um, beyond just philosophically, I can I can see that I'm not my body, and I can. So it's, for me, it's ridiculous to try and make this body like perfect or look a certain way, thinking that's who I am, and trying to mm. get people's attention or worth take get a receipt uh, think my self-worth is connected to that somehow yeah so i know i know that um but as soon as you start going to the gym you that the mind comes in starts going like oh yeah you need to do this and you know the like six pack and all these things I've never, i never you know like it just, just gets like this ridiculous thing coming in mm. and I can I've gone blank now I can't remember where I was going with that and that's really annoyed me because it was a really uh...
1: you're talking about being attached to the outcome and <laughs> like I can I can really understand what you're saying like all all like dating apps and stuff like that they're not about intimacy they're not about true authenticity they are it's about looking at someone's picture on the outside and deciding whether or not in your you know in your memory or whatever it is that you've learned that you like whether or not they fit this ideal it's a kind of list it's a tick box and it's not about being a human they're
0: so shallow they're so shallow the dating apps and i've just remember i've just i've just realized uh, remembered what i was going to say is that the realization that i had with the gym or how i look at all these things is that no one cares And it's not that they don't care about you, but like, it's like when, if you're putting yourself out there as an object of desire, an object of lust, you know, someone as an object, if you're putting yourself out there as an object, it's kind of like people are just comparing all these objects. And, they're like, oh, well, there's a nice one. And I guarantee there's always going to be a nicer looking thing. There's always going to be a more beautiful thing to capture someone's attention than than me. So why why spend, you know, years and years restricting stupid diets and, and all this work, two yeah. hours every day, all day in the gym, and just this, this massive amount of effort to try and look a certain way. As soon as you stop doing it, it, it just within two weeks, it's just gone again. And it's just mm-hmm. such a waste of time because, like, in reality people don't care about that that much people care more about who you are and yeah. that is so much more than an object absolutely yeah. i mean
1: i i can relate to that personally because i was a model um when i was younger and i've never felt more alienated in my life it was just it was horrible it was like being being looked at from the outside and they're not looking at who you are it's really um so I, I really understand how that feels, and it's nothing. It's nothing about b- being a real person. It's like looking like a Ferrari, and like on the inside, I felt like a I don't know Morris Minor or something. I was shy. <laughs> I was really shy, and I was anxious, and and it was just deeply uncomfortable. I was an object. But we're That's getting wonderful. away from filmmaking and addiction.
0: No, it's it's really important. I think personally, um, because you know, like you can spend so much time trying to be the object of desire and you can become the object of desire and then you, you become the object of people's lust and people want to use your object for their pleasure and you get loads of attention and it's just a world of anxiety because you're now underneath a magnifying glass with everyone staring at you and you Mm. don't want that but it's kind of like it's like i want everyone to like me and i want everyone to adore me me being my body and then when they do i can't handle it it's just a world of anxiety and i just want to hide and i can't and then i can't go out anywhere and
1: it's temporary you know you you get wrong
0: you get bad attention from you know lustuous atten- attention from people as well where they just want to it's just yes yeah, it's,
1: it's mm. you know and the thing with that is it's temporary it's like so you may be like fashionable for you know like 10 minutes or whatever and then you just become yourself again and the the nature of the world uh, you know with with social media is that we we all want things quickly Don't they don't last long um and it's all on the surface so unfortunately you know People who represent, um, you know, what, what is considered to be attractive, you know, may, may get better breaks than people who don't. And, and that's something that um, that is really wrong. Mm. I mean, you're a good-looking chap. <laughs> Have you got I a hide in pack? my bedroom. No. You hired...
0: <laughs> I've never had a six pack. Maybe, maybe a little bit when I did lots of drugs. That there might have been bones. I'm not sure. Well, exactly. Um... Well,
1: I mean, I, I, women women are not interested. In, some women are interested in the six pack, but you know, it's it's about who you are inside. And um, I don't know. I think this is kind of deep shame. There is. Well, I have shame. I would say that there's a kind of toxic shame in me that goes back to my childhood that I've done something wrong and that I'm not fitting in and that I'm kind of moving out of line. Mm. Um, so I I usually go along with things. I can I can go along with things when I shouldn't, and I do find it difficult to have boundaries. Um, and you know that's a work in progress. Um, so like a normal boundary that someone might have, like. Um, Oh God, I'm trying to think like, no, I'm sorry. I can't see you tomorrow night because um, I'm going to wash my hair or something. I, I, you know, I will say, of course I can see you. And it's just, it's, it's like that. It's like programmed into my brain. Yeah. It's weird. Um, So when you're in recovery, you, you really sort of look at your behaviors and your personality and you think, "Hmm, where did that come from? Um,
0: yeah yeah it's funny I've had that as well um I don't know like people how people see you and how you how people you think people see themselves based on how they look or whatever I've always felt insecure I've always felt I don't know I've never felt that desirable to people in that way either I don't know it's got nothing to do with the outside it's all what's going on on the inside and you just don't know how people are Mm. what what they're carrying around with them inside I don't know whatever what do maybe think, it was what? the bullying or home or I don't know what it was but yeah so for me for me to actually get some kind of security did definitely didn't come from any external thing it came from in reality my spirit, spiritual path and a combination of a spiritual path and and do, doing good esteemable acts doing trying to live a Life where I don't have to feel guilty about things and trying to do the right thing and live a Mm guilt-free, balanced life from making good choices, I think. Hmm. What do you do? um, How do you manage your emotions in recovery when, you know, um, when things get really difficult? Mm.
1: Well you know things don't have to get really difficult at all. Um, it can be on a day-to-day level the um, small thing. It's always small things that that are difficult and the big things are actually easier to deal with I think. Um, so you know in recovery going to meetings, sharing, being totally honest and open. I mean um, that's something that's kind of ingrained in my head. I mean not I wouldn't be open and honest to everybody because it might endanger me but if i'm in a meeting i need to share stuff um that's inside me um and when you speak out about stuff it kind of takes the power out of things i have a sponsor um i have some really fantastic friends in in recovery as well and and also the work i do um my whole life my whole life is recovery
0: um
1: and and that's the way i want it you know um
0: I found like because because I've set my life up in a way that's the same, and I think that one of the one of the reasons why I did that is because it just makes it so much easier to to be in recovery and to stay safe, um, because every every way you look is recovery, um, and the people that you meet are just amazing, constantly, just amazing people and just mm-hmm. good people, and it makes life it does it makes the quality of life a lot better, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely A 100%. Um I I I can't be around people who are intoxicated. Um I, do, I don't judge them, but I just can't be around them. I just find it's a complete waste of time and um it just reminds me it reminds me of my dad and it reminds me of me. Um you know, there is nothing Positive about addiction. I think Gabo Mate says that, you know, it's it's an answer to a solution, and I totally I totally agree with him. Um, and thank God, you know, I was able to to turn it around and get get out of that nightmare. Um, so we did um, sobriety films. we um, were given um, the gift of um, promoting the new Gabal Mate, Mate documentary, The Wisdom of Trauma. In the UK, um, and that was that was a really incredible gift from the director. Um, and Gabriel Mate is is one of my um, I don't want to say guru. Um, he, he he was very important in my early recovery. Um, his book um, "Realm with the Hun- Hungry Ghosts" and his work um, that he's done on, on addiction and trauma is really um, seminal. Um, so uh, we, we're very honoured to get that. It's a very important documentary. You've seen it, James, I think.
0: I have. I probably take for granted how how much uh, Gabor's work is uh, cemented in the foundations of my uh, philosophy when it comes to recovery. It's just because, yeah, those books – I actually thought Scattered Minds was unbelievable. Like, for me, that, that, like, I, I read In the Realm of Hungry Ghost, and I guess because I've heard of quite a lot of that stuff through Osmosis before. And then when I read Scattered Minds, I was like, wow, this is mind blowing. Everybody should read this book. This book's so important because I don't. Yeah, it's about ADHD, but it's more about having a scattered mind and why people's minds become scattered. And it just—I thought it was mind-blowing. It was amazing. So, if anybody's not read *Scattered Minds* by Gabor Mate, read that one because that's one of the most life-changing, impactful books that I've ever read. It helped me to understand how to deal with people and you know, parenting, and just yeah, how people Mm. how you can change the the course of it and and then people's lives entirely. From a young age,
1: that is yeah. um, a, an extremely powerful book. I, I personally, uh, a couple of my friends, read it and and realised that they they had um, ADHD and it changed changed their life. Because um, that you know with ADHD, like, traditionally it was like oh, the naughty boy in the classroom, like um, and it, and lots of women have um, well they ha- usually have ADD which isn't diagnosed. Um, and um of course you know gabor maté says that adhd is caused by trauma doesn't he in that book
0: yeah yeah
1: um and um you know that's a, i think fundamental for people who who suffer with that condition to to feel that it's not cuz they're naughty or stupid or you know like that neurodiverse um and they're bloody amazing um there is I think,
0: I think briefly that in in summary it was um trauma can cause um the the um postpone the development of the orbital frontal cortex which is the front portion of the brain which deals with emotional uh, with 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 uh, self control regulation and emo- emotional regulation so it causes, you know, obviously that can lead to addictions because you can't, uh, low, poor impulse control. Um, yeah. It can lead to being stubborn, um, you know, not being able to pay attention, appearing to be lazy. All, all of these things can come from trauma and all these, all of those mm. things cause things that are highly stigmatized in society um, or leading uh coming from the fact that there's some you know that's come from somewhere and actually there needs to be a totally different outlook on the way that we deal with people who are suffering with these things
1: yes very well put um i tend to speak better through films than i do with my with my mouth sometimes but um yeah there was um <laughs> i went to a conference on um on ACEs um adverse childhood experiences and they there was a neuroscientist there from oh God, one of the universities in London and they 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 had um, brain scans of children um before and after they'd been through uh periods of trauma and they they showed the change that that had had made in their um neurology you know it changed their brain
0: yeah that, yeah. this thing that me and you have both done during this podcast of going blank is also linked back to that you know where you, you um, memory and stuff as well uh short term memory all of those things are linked to trauma um, yeah it's really really interesting yeah how it can totally mm-hmm. change um, change your brain structure but one of the things that was really positive that you mentioned was about neuroplasticity and mm-hmm. that through being in the right conditions that you can I, i've seen in myself how my My cognitive functioning has changed so much from after being an addict, going from being to have zero impulse control, um, scattered, my mind literally was scattered all the time, um, and and just really struggling with everything in life, um, taking orders, listening to people, all of that stuff. And then through through recovery, I've come to a point where it's like, I feel kind of grown up. a little bit now. Uh, and, and just, the, I've seen a huge change in myself.
1: How old are you, James?
0: 31.
1: You I'm not going to ask you cause
0: that would be rude.
1: <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> well, I don't talk about my age. I'm not going to be pigeonholed. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say something. Um, I've just gone blank. Um, one of the things that does affect me cognitively and my memory, um, reasoning is lack of sleep, you know, and that is, that is a symptom of uh, depression that I have. So lack of sleep can be a real, a real difficult one.
0: Speaking of which it is getting very late there and I don't want to keep you, I don't want to keep you for much longer. Maybe there was a lack of wisdom in us doing this so late in the UK and maybe I'm selfish for living on the other side of the world. I'm not sure, but, um, yes sorry um so last and and for
1: not doing it next week
0: i could have done that couldn't i was that impatient trauma it was the trauma Mm. sorry (laughs) what okay so what do you think caused you to relapse and do you think there's anything that you could have done to prevent that
1: Mm. it's a good question i know exactly what led me to relapse and it was it was going down into depression very quickly I mean I knew that it was I knew that it was coming I was in a relationship and um that it was ending and um I just felt myself starting to fall down into the into into a depressive phase and could could I've done anything not to relapse I don't think I had enough experience in recovery not to relapse at that point does that make sense yeah um so actually, I think it's really positive. i think it's really important to talk about relapse um and for me, relapse has certainly been part of my my recovery and and my addiction and it's it is possible to come back um some people don't come back and luckily i I had a very solid group who were around me i also um I've always had psychotherapy um which has helped me. I I needed that as well um, as 12-step, you know, recovery.
0: More impressively, how did you bounce back from that so fast?
1: From the relapse? Mm. Um, I I didn't bounce back from it so fast. I just stopped drinking uh, after a night um I can't really explain what I mean by that um mentally um I was quite devastated that I'd relapsed and it kind of did take me by surprise so it it took me a long time to to reason in my head that I had actually relapsed um does that make sense it's like yes I put I put it down but I was still in the mental space that had made me relapse um of course, I, I, I
0: see that as a testament to an enormous amount of strength, even, you know, to, to, to stop doing that, because I think that's the thing that's hard. It's like if you have, you, you're still in that headspace, you have every reason to keep doing it, but you didn't.
1: I think also I had a lot of practice before I finally, you know, got sober. I did try before and it never worked. Um, so I knew I kind of knew I knew it wasn't an answer. And I knew that I, if I kept on doing it, I'd probably end up. I don't know, you know, who knows? Um, I don't know. I what was, what was really important for my recovery was that I had I was I had this group of really strong women behind me, um, and they were very nurturing. Um, and they really cared about me. I remember going to a meeting the next morning with my sponsor. Um that's quite, That's that's massive. You know that other people got me out of that and kept me um, kept me safe from, from doing it again until twenty two months uh, later, when it was I was I got ill again and then it was the um, F U C K button, the beep button.
0: What's that? Allowed,
1: the fuck it button. I'm allowed to say that. The yeah. fuck it button. <laughs> so the fuck it button is a is an evil one. I mean that that can get us at any time, and that's about impulse control, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, recovery is about emotional sobriety, and it's not about not drinking. It's been a long time.
0: Yeah, that's an important, uh, a very important, and under probably an underspoken about term is emo- emotional sobriety. There's so many things that can, that can, we can get uh, intoxicated on, and using like using the mind to get intoxicated. You know, the the things that we spend our time thinking about. You know, the more we spend our time obsessing over things that are actually lead to lead in a bad situation. Like I, when I meditate, I spend I try and focus on spiritual things or doing good things not for myself and self-care all those things I think about those things self-care is massive in my life like it's absolutely huge but I don't Mm. see it as selfish I see it as part of the picture so Mm. I focus on those things but then if I start thinking about I don't think about the past very often only only for I only think about the past if it's reflecting on making the future better so for for the purpose of helping people, I'll think about past experiences and I, but I don't go there for, for pleasure. I don't think about the past trying to make me happy because I find if I think about the past, it draws me in a direction that I've already been and I don't want to go. So it's like, I don't forget about it, but it's like, you know, like driving a car and I look in the rear view mirror now and then just to know it's there and to reflect on the fact that I might be acting in a certain way based on something that's nothing to do with the present, yeah. helpful, but I don't drive looking in the rearview mirror because I will crash.
1: It's like, an old, it's like an old pattern, reenacting an old pattern. So one of the steps in the 12-step fellowship is step four, which is where you write your um, personal inventory of things that have happened in your past, which you are ashamed of, or your resentments, and you... Uh, you, you then share it with another person and, um, that it takes it away. Like the things that we do. Can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry. The things that we do, the things that I did when I was drinking, the people that I hurt, um, I had to, I had to, you know, admit to, to what I'd done and, and, and um, by doing that and giving it to someone else, um, and then accepting accept, accepting it, um, it takes the power out of it. I don't regret anything that's happened in my life now. Um, I don't um, look back and think, I don't want to think about that. Um, well That's not true. I do think about that, things that happened recently, but I've processed a lot of stuff Mm. does that make sense so you're saying I understand what you're saying don't look you don't you don't look back because it's not necessarily helpful I'm saying I've looked back a lot and there's a lot of stuff that I've processed um,
0: uh, I'm saying um, I don't look back for pleasure I look back for purposefully so if it's for the purpose of making sense of the present and 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 self-improvement I look back I don't look back and think about, oh, that was such a good time. Like, you know, like, oh, think about all the raves I went to, like, oh, they were brilliant. And just, pick out a moment and think, oh, that was so good. You know, like like as an addict, like you could think about, it, like, oh, I went to that Raven or that festival and it was so good, but then ignore the Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday when you feel like suicidal and like you want to die, you know, like because that, 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 that for me is part of emotional sobriety. If I am constantly thinking about things that I've done and thinking, oh, that was so good, I become emotional and I start desiring things uh, that are dragging me back towards something. So for me to stay emotionally sober, I have to kind of, be like, all oh, right, that's done now, <laughs> and mm. and, not, and not kind of like uh, think about things that make me emotional, things that make me hanker after things. Because as soon as I get that desire inside me that wants something, I start getting frustrated as well. It's like it's like not being present in any way. It's dragging me out of the present moment um, and towards the back, which I feels like it feels like I've got a weight on me. And um, yeah, that that frustration for me is a dangerous place.
1: Have you? How long have you been in recovery?
0: You did ask me that. I, I, I was pretty oblivious when you were speaking to me. Um, I have been in recovery for. I've been sober for a, a year since last New Year's Eve. So last year, New Year's Eve, a year before that was it 2019. I'd mm-hmm. been kind of away from drugs for about seven, eight years. Yeah. With a couple of major binges in the middle of there. Mm -hmm. and i'd been on the run i was on the run for a long time and then it wasn't and and i said never again never ever again yeah um a year ago last new year's eve but i'd been kind of like trying to figure out how to not necessarily get sober but be happy i was trying to find happiness Mm. trying to feel good and trying to figure out how to i was like i was like addicted to fun that was like like I was addicted to not dealing with reality and just having a good time all the time. That's what that was what my addiction really was. Mm. Just trying to constantly feel good like adrenaline or or drugs or alcohol all of it. You know I was just after like just a hedonist basically. And um yeah like I, nothing worked. Nothing worked at all until I started until I started practicing spirituality seriously. And then all like all these desires for drugs, which had clawed out my mind, my sober mind for years. It just went quiet. And I think that I got into recovery. I think three years ago, I guess, when I started practic- like doing self-help things, I started reading books, mm-hmm. trying to improve myself um in some way like i read 12 rules for life by jordan peterson and uh Uh. um and and what was what was the other one um what did you just (laughs) 12 rules for life by jordan peterson i read that and what's the other one the subtle art of not giving a fuck and then and then i read those and that kind of pointed me towards spirituality and then when i started doing that and just went in uh deep into that then uh, yeah it, I guess that was my recovery journey it wasn't like through I didn't do 12 steps but um I got a lot of respect for it through what I learned through um spirituality and I saw that it was the same thing basically you had a pretty adverse reaction there
1: <laughs> I, I don't think I should comment on that <clears throat> it's not really constructive I think whatever works for any you know people to get recovery is whatever works for them <laughs> I think 12 step is, is quite, um, disciplined. I think, um, I think it has to be that way. Um, uh, yeah. And just this feeling that you're, you're part of a group, um, is how, how it worked for me. Definitely.
0: So one, what was the, what's been the best moment in your recovery?
1: Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I can think of a lot of the worst moments in my recovery. OK, one of the best moments in my recovery was um, it was in 2019. Um, uh, so my, my first film, How I Got Sober, was premiered at the Real Recovery Film Festival in L.A. And I went there and did a Q&A. Uh, and I spoke about I was speaking about addiction and mental health in the UK um, amongst young people, and then it was shown in New York, and then we showed it in London, and then um, last year it was shown twice in Scotland. Um, so yeah, I, it was it was a real moment of like, oh my goodness, look how far I've come. When um, I was sitting there watching my film, um, and then I got up and did a Q and A, and I just thought is this me? Um, I never thought I'd be able to do that. I was absolutely destroyed with, with, with addiction and, and mental illness. And the idea of standing up in front of those people, it just wouldn't have happened before. Um, so that was, uh, that was a real triumph. Um,
0: yeah, I bet that was amazing. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, Public speaking, uh, I still find it terrifying. Um, even though I do all these podcasts and stuff, when I have to stand up in front of people, it—I just—I just, I feel like I'm not going to be able to say anything, or I worry that I'm going to forget what I'm saying. And yeah, it's a terrifying experience. So that must have been do amazing.
1: Feel, do you feel anxious now? No. Good.
0: Not not on the podcast. I don't know. It's just uh, I feel like there's a, a, a layer of protection. I don't know why. It's but um, it's when it's you're live, not looking you're, at me. <laughs> when you're live and it's um <laughs> yeah you're not going to hit me or anything it's uh there's a screen I'm on the other side of the world I've prepared uh mm. I've defended myself well but um no when, when you're there in person and I just I just feel I just feel so vulnerable standing in front of people I think that relates back to you know that um being uh that bullying thing again you know being rejected in front of a group uh yeah. by a big group of people I think that that's something that's really deep in 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 my psyche and uh if if I had a bad experience, I think that it could it do something. It would be really bad for me. But I try and not not be focused on it being about me, rather than trying to do what I need to do, trying to do the right thing. If I need to speak to a group of people, do it. Rather than wanting to speak to a group of people just for the sake of it, because then it's about me, isn't it? Just talking to people and what's the what's the you know what's the game? But if I've got so to talk you- to people and I've got a message to deliver do it yeah
1: you're training you're training to be a counsellor
0: yeah yeah
1: hooray
0: yeah no that's that's fun um it's a lot of work they they it's emotionally taxing as well yeah. like uh the, it, it, part of the training is they just trigger us loads
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. You know,
0: like like we talk we we talk about like in we're doing like cultural identity and we talk about uh racism colonialisation, sexism gender disabilities, all these things all these um um topics where people are ignorant and and maybe have misunderstandings or uh, or uh, white privilege and as a white male uh british uh person in these classes i just kind of like just kind of like sit down and be quiet you know it's uh, pretty interesting <laughs> how you doing Are you uh it, you must be yeah. pretty tired over there
1: yeah sorry i'm just trying to think if there's anything else um, um Oh yeah, I was just going to uh, mention a bit. So we've had the the um, parliamentary report by Dane Carol Black and um, she is saying that there needs to be a lot more money for treatment pr- provision um, and she identifies that um, a lot more younger people are using drugs. Um, have you started using drugs? Uh, okay, how are you going to cut this? She identifies, you know, that Younger people are using drugs and have used drugs and alcohol to get through lockdown. So, the Office of National Statistics has just released the um, recorded drugs deaths for England and Wales in 2020, and it's the highest since records began in 1993. Mm, it's tragic. Yeah. So, you know, we, ha- we had a big problem before lockdown, um, and... Um, we've uh, i i think you know the the suicide rate isn't being um recorded properly i think that will definitely if 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 you took other sort of ways of people um dying um then it would be higher and and i also think that it will it will be coming in the next sort of year rather than necessarily du- during lockdown yeah as the, as I, the effects,
0: I, the knock-on effects. I, I yeah, I, I think so as well. It's it's been a funny one. Like the suicide rate from what, like, I'm you know, like from what I've seen from the people I've known and the uh, the the reach that I that I have, I've seen the suicide rate be actually kind of like there's been no suicides during that time, which has been really unusual because normally there's a lot more. But the addiction uh, has definitely been worse and there's but there's, there's been like a real polarization of people who've actually had a really good uh outcome of a, of lockdown and some that have had a, a a really bad one so it'll be really interesting to uh to see what the outcomes are of that is there is there anything that uh that's being done to address those things at the moment
1: um what addiction or suicide both um well we desperately need more money for addiction and there's also the 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 people who are falling through the net here are people with dual diagnosis who have mental illness and addiction and they're 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 not getting the proper treatment um that they need um there's there there are anti-suicide strategies i think um we're going to be working um, with one in london um in september um I, c- I couldn't tell you what, what specifically, you know, national um,
0: campaigns
1: um, are happening. Uh, so I was just going to say, the, so the total deaths um, registered in 2020, half of those um, were involved in opiate. And I think we were talking about fentanyl earlier, weren't we? Yeah. So that's, um, I'm sure that's a result of that. Um, but there's also been a rise in cocaine use um and uh, they also they're, yeah so the people who are dying are more uh, more men i'm getting really tired now sorry the people who are uh, dying are men uh, men in the 45 to 49 um age group and they're saying that maybe because they've used drugs in in a chronic manner in the past um so
0: it's yeah it's um it's pretty worrying really. Yeah. I do I do think that that people re- need to be really 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 careful of these opiate based drugs legal or not prescription or not um they are absolutely deadly um especially mixed with alcohol and like, like out of all my friends that have started like there's been there's a wave of uh, overdoses started happening they have all been related to uh, morphine fentanyl xanax all of these opiate based things which are you know, I've took the absolute piss with drugs. I've sniffed bags of white powder off the floor. I've done all kinds of stupid things. And I've always just had that that just complete caution to the wind, it'll be okay thing. And I've started to see now that I am incredibly lucky to be alive. And actually, these things are deadly, especially the opiate things. So I think just if you've never tried them, just don't bother. You know, if you're an addict and you can't help it, stick to what you know. Um, And if you, you know... There, there is a way out of it. There is a way out of addiction. How if if what would be the best place you would recommend to start for someone who wants to get out of addiction?
1: I think it would be the easiest place um, that one could could choose that one feels comfortable um, doing. So it could be talking to somebody that you trust and say, "Look, I think I've got a problem. Can you help me?" Um, people can go to their GPs, um, the treatment services, or council treatment services. There's lots of hotlines. Um, There's also smart recovery and 12-step recovery. Um, That's the really difficult thing, isn't it? At the beginning, it's reaching out and saying, I think I've got a problem. Um, And that's the bravest step that that we can take. Um,
0: Absolutely. Being honest and then reaching out. Definitely, good places to start. All right, Maddie, I'm going to let you get some sleep. Um, thank oh, you so man. much for um, staying up uh, so late and and doing this. Um, oh, bless th- you! Thanks for coming on. It's you know it's really wonderful to meet you properly. Um, since I saw Sobriety Films, I always enjoy, like. Look, it looks like a. It reminded me like a punk style um, logo. I always liked the logo. It was very uh, Sex Pistols type of uh, punk style, and I, I, yeah, it was very, definitely attracted me with uh, with the logo. So um, and I like you're your wonderful. Logo. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. It was uh, done by my mate Leo Scott Smith, who I was telling you about earlier. He did it for me. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Thank you very much, Maddie. And we've told everybody earlier on where they can find you, but we'll put all the links to your stuff in the show notes. So if anybody wants to check out Sobriety Films, um, it'll all be down there. So yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Maddie.
1: Thank you very much, James. Lots of love to you and recovery in New Zealand.
0: And you. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. I hope that you enjoyed the show and I really appreciate you stopping by. If you found some benefit from listening to this episode, please hit subscribe and share it with anyone that you think might need it so that we can try to turn the tide on the devastating mental health epidemic that the world is facing. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Break the chain.